Welcome to the Light Shine Church Sermon Podcast. I'm organizing pastor Rob Douglas, and I'd like to thank you for taking the time to listen to our weekly message. Good morning, everybody. Good to be back. Missed you guys. Excited to be here with you all. Um, Yeah, so I'm going to tell you guys a story right now that uh, it's going to make me look really, really bad. So you guys ready for that? Yeah, cool. All right. Okay, so some context before I tell the story. I used to be a very conservative evangelical Christian, which isn't necessarily a bad thing. But uh, when I was in college, I was just recently become a Christian straight out of rehab. And when I was in, in, in college, I was studying theology and ministry leadership. Um, and at the time I was dating my now wife, Amy, and we used to hang out with her brother and his wife because Amy was best friends with Kelsey, her brother's wife now. And all three of us were theology majors. And occasionally we would talk about theology and one night for what, for whatever reason, someone asked one of the nerdiest questions ever, what attribute about God, about Jesus is the most important to you? I know, super nerdy, but uh, we all sat around and we like talked about what attribute we believe was the most important or the one we liked the most, whatever. And so we, we all went around in a circle one by one saying things like, oh, I love that he's all powerful and or compassionate, which is a good one. And, and, and I said something along the lines of, uh, I love how he's, he can create something out of nothing, that he's creative. I like art and that kind of stuff. So the creativity thing was important to me. And then finally, finally, and this is where I'm going to look bad. Finally, it comes to Amy, my sweet wife, and she hesitates to answer because she doesn't want to get made fun of because she knows this is how cruel we are as friends. Um, She knows that we're going to put her down for whatever reason. So, so she finally answers as we push it along. And Amy says this, she says, I love that Jesus is humble. I love his humility. And you'd think we'd be like, yeah, that's amazing. That's a good one. But for whatever reason, we all agree that that wasn't an important attribute. I, this, this just tells you where my head was at back then, right? Um, I said this, and I, I don't even know why she, she chose to marry me after this interaction, really. But, but I said, out of all the attributes, all-knowing, all-powerful, creative, things out of, uh, creating things out of nothing, you picked humility? Why would you pick humility? That doesn't make sense to me. And of course she was a little embarrassed, embarrassed, but she stood for, she stood up for herself and she, she, she stood her ground. And even after all of us agreed that humility wasn't even in the top five of Jesus' great, greatest attributes, you can see um, where our worldviews were at the time. But I was, I was wrapped up in this strong, muscly, but kind of loving Jesus of the white evangelical church. Right. And uh, humility in my eyes wasn't, a worthy attribute. It was just a weakness. And I obviously hadn't done a deep dive into scripture at this point because humility is the source of God's strength. And it is one of the most amazing things about God. Because as it turns out, humility is the foundation of what makes God so great because he forsake heaven and came down here and took on the form of a slave to die even for his own enemies, even those who opposed him out of love. 
And this is the foundation of the gospel. Humility is the core source of Jesus's strength. And I still don't know why Amy uh, married me after that interaction, but she did for some reason. And she was absolutely right that humility is the best attribute about God, if not in the top five, right? Um, maybe that's why we're still married, because I realize she's usually right and I'm usually wrong. But anyways, today's scripture reading displays God's radical humility and how this humility is an extension of grace and how it is beyond good news, beyond better than anything we could ever dream or imagine. So we're going to jump into 2 Samuel 7. If you guys have your Bibles with you this morning, you can open up to 2 Samuel 7, 1 through 17. Um, if not, I'm going to read it. But before we get into it, will you pray with me? God, I thank you so much for this community that is passionate about displaying a God that is far, far different than the gods that we see outside every day in the politics, the things that people worship, the styles of leadership that are all about power and taking advantage of and greed. I'm, I'm so happy that I get to be a part of this community, Light Shine Church. So may you continue to guide them, lead them, bless them, be with them as they strive to be more like you, a humble, loving, compassionate presence in this world that needs it deeply and dearly. Would you open up our hearts and our minds to see you in the scripture this morning and to then set us on fire as we leave church, our homes today, displaying your radical humility and love and grace as we move out into the world. So Jesus name I pray. Amen. All right, 2 Samuel 7, starting in verse 1, says this. After the king was settled in his palace and the Lord had given him rest from all of his enemies around him, he said to Nathan the prophet, Here I am living in a house of cedar while the ark of God remains in a tent. Nathan replied to the king, Whatever you have in mind, go ahead and do it, for the Lord is with you. But that night, the, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and tell my servant David, this is what the Lord says. Are you the one to build me a house to dwell in? I've not dwelt in a house from the day I brought the Israelites up out of Egypt to this day. I've been moving from place to place with a tent as my dwelling. Whatever I have moved with all, all the Israelites, did I ever say to any of their rulers whom I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now then, tell my servant David, this is what the Lord Almighty says. I took you from the pasture, from the tending the flock, and appointed you ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have cut off all of your enemies from before you. Now I will make your, great, your name great, like the names of the greatest men on earth. And I will provide a place for my people, Israel, and will plant them so that they can have a home of their own and no longer be disturbed. Wicked people will not oppress them anymore as they did at the beginning and have done ever since the time I appointed, I appointed leaders over my people, Israel. I will also give rest from all of your enemies." 
The Lord declared to you that the Lord himself will establish a house for you. When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with a rod wielded by men with flogging inflicted by human hands. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever before me. Your throne will be established forever. And Nathan reported to David all of the words of this entire revelation. The word of the Lord. Okay, so when I first read this text, like usual, I missed the point entirely, right? I thought this story was about David's gratitude, that God had done all these great things for David. So now David's like, I need to show God that I love him because he's done great things for me. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to build him a temple. And at first glance, that's exactly what this text looks like, right? It, it appears that because God has granted David safety and given him a house of cedar to the, and to the rest of his household and, and, and has given him a place to rest, now David, out of gratitude, wants to build a temple for the Lord to pay his respect. However, there's actually nowhere in this text that reveals he's responding out of true gratitude. Really, what it appears to be is more of a quid pro quo situation, right? David it lives in fear that if he doesn't pay God back all of the blessings he has received, they could be taken away from him, right? So he has, he has to keep it up. He, you see, in this ancient Near East concept of God, it was common to appease the gods, to appease the God of agriculture, to appease the God of fertility or the God of the sea or the God of whatever, right? If, if you didn't do that, well, then you wouldn't get crops. You wouldn't have cattle. You wouldn't get the right weather. There would be famine and starvation. If they didn't appease the gods, then the gods would be angry with you. If you didn't build a temple to worship them in, if you didn't, you know, respect them and, and, and do the right steps, then the gods would make you pay the price. And this is probably how David is viewing God. One that needs to be appeased, because if you don't know what, what well, well it, then you don't know what's going to happen. So David thinks, I, I, I could end up a poor shepherd again. I could get kicked out of this house of cedar. I could be thrown back out into the fields. The people of Israel can be attacked. I could lose my life. They could lose their lives. So we need to make sure God is worshipped. God is respected. We need to build a temple. We need to do the right things. But as the great prophet Rob Bell once said, the gods aren't angry at you. The gods aren't angry at you. And this is what David is learning from this experience. This revelation that Nathan has given David from God. That our God in his deep humility and grace 
loves us forevermore. And I wonder how many of us have a similar concept of the God that David had. I know I struggle with it, right? I wake up every morning around 5.30 or 6 because I have young kids, not by my, my choosing, right? But I wake up very early and I do my, my morning meditation. Usually I have to, uh, I do it on like in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, or I have like some set meditations that I do. And then I say a prayer. I say the same prayer every morning. It's something I've been saying for probably 10 years, maybe once or twice a day. It's called the third step prayer. And I say, God, I offer myself to thee to build with me and do with me as thou wilt. Relieve me of the bondage of self that I may better do thy will. Take away my difficulties that victory over them may bear witness to those I would help with thy power, thy love, and thy way of life. May I do thy will always. And then from there, I sometimes go into like a gratitude list where I write down things that I'm grateful for. But the temptation for me is the same temptation that David had. The temptation is that I can see God as a God that needs to be appeased. That if, that if I don't do, say this prayer every morning, if I don't do my daily meditation, if I don't do a gratitude list, then, then, then my life could turn out poorly, right? That I could start drinking again or, or I, I, won't, I won't do well in my business and I, I will be a failure that he won't bless my crops, that he won't bless my land, that he won't bless my family. But again, this text is completely reframing this archaic view of the divine. Because our God is not angry with us. Our God does not need to be appeased. Our God is grounded rather in a deep humility. He doesn't need, as this text says, a temple to dwell in. Of course, a temple is later built on for God, but that is a different story. Our God is a God who is comfortable dwelling in the wilderness with no place to rest his head, as Jesus said. And then he is a master at redeeming those who are oppressed, who are abused by the powerful, and he sets the captive free. And then and only then will our hearts have a healthy expression of gratitude. One that isn't based in fear and scarcity, but when we experience this God of humility, God of relentless love and grace that gives you everything at the cost of nothing except for his own life, then we have a true expression of gratitude and love to God, not one based out of fear that if we don't do the right things, say the right prayers, build the right building, create the right church, then he won't bless our lives. But one that is, oh, he gives us this gift for free. And now I want to worship. Now I want to follow. Now I want to love. Even when we make mistakes out of his grace, the text says, we are corrected, but never abandoned. Because it always starts with grace and ends with grace. We don't have to earn our love from this God. It is free for us, but at the lar largest cost for him. So this view uh, is, is like, uh, this, this text is a full reversal of the ancient way of thinking about God. 
And I think the challenge for us today is to ask ourselves, how do we view God? How do we view God? Is there some part of us that still struggles to view God as a God of uh, unending grace and love? A God that loves you for no good reason? Do we still struggle with a God that we need to appease? When we pray or worship or choose to be moral and do the right thing and make the right choices, are we doing that out of a fear of rejection from that God? And if you don't think this is like an actual issue in the church, it really is. There was, there was a, a national study done of youth and religion conducted by sociologists Christian Smith and Melinda Lundquist Denton that discovered a majority of U.S. Christians follow a different kind of God from that portrayed in scripture. You guys might have heard these words tossed around, um, especially if you've been to seminary, but the terminology used for this is a deity called moralistic therapeutic deism. Moralistic therapeutic deism. And there's five core beliefs of this. Number one, God exists who created and ordered the world and watches over human life on earth. Now that sounds all right, right? Number two, God wants people to be good, nice, and fair to each other as taught in the Bible and by most world religions. Sounds sweet. Number three, the central core or goal of life is to be happy and to feel good for oneself. Okay, being happy is all right, but well, sounds a little selfish. Number four, God does not need to be particular, particularly involved in one's life except when God is needed to resolve problems. See the issue there? Number five, good people go to heaven when they die. Okay. So now part of this stuff is true, but it's not entirely the true story. As we can see, this is a, a lot like God, the God that David was trying to impress, right? God is only called on when we're in trouble. God makes things better if we take the right steps, if we're good, if we're moral, if we're upright. But Nathan receives this message from an all-knowing God that reveals that he is way more involved and less interested in trying to be pleased by buildings by churches, by temples, by your moral choices. He's much more concerned with us seeing him how he truly is. A God that is truly humble and truly grounded in a deep and everlasting grace. The call to worship today for us is to abandon this ancient God of fear and the new adaptation of moralistic therapeutic deism and to be grounded in a God who is radically loving, radically filled with grace and radically humble. See, our God doesn't demand we build him temples, but instead gives us keys to a kingdom 
Let me say that again. Our God doesn't demand we build him temples, but instead for free gives us keys to a kingdom and says you are now agents of grace, love, compassion, and humility. Go into the world and reveal to them a better, better way and give out more keys to. This, this love is free. This grace is free. And the only cost was his own life. You can see how he flips the tables of the other concept of God. And this truly is the good news. And the question for us is, are you in? Are you in? Are you in? So let us pray. God, I thank you that you are a God of deep humility. I thank you that you call no matter who we are to your kingdom, no matter what we've done, you call us into your kingdom and you give us the keys. So I pray this morning that we can sit in your presence of grace and your presence of love. And that if we're struggling to view you in a way that you are, you truly are a God of unending grace and love that you would break down those barriers, those walls in our hearts and our minds so that we would stop being someone who needs to do the right thing or take the right step or make the right choice or even be moral and upright. And we could just rest in your grace and your love for us. And may that be the foundation that truly transforms us and moves us in a direction of becoming more like you. So Jesus, I thank you that you are inviting us all to the table this morning to participate in your grace, in your community, and in your kingdom. Thank you for the keys to the kingdom of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. All right. So uh, this morning, as we, as we get into the time of reflection, um, there's actually a couple options. So we have this reflection question um, that all, that'll be posted up in a little bit. Um, but as we do that, there's actually two, two avenues that you can take. You can either just reflect on your own or talk with people in your house that you're with, or you can actually go into a breakout room. Um, or you can actually type your stuff into the chat if you want to do that too. If you don't have the newest updated version of zoom, you won't be able to get into the breakout room. So that's why if it's not letting you in, um, but you have those two options. So the question this morning, I'll read it before it's posted up there, but can we abandon the ancient God of fear and put on the God of grace, humility, and never ending love? So take a minute to reflect on your concept of God. And if there's even an inkling of the old ancient God, take a minute to give that up. <laughs> 